It is such an honor to be with you folks and to get a chance to hang out with your super cool faculty. And they really are super cool. I know that we, you know, we are kind of the nerd class, the PhD types, but these are cool nerds, just letting you know. Um, so yes, I'm truly honored and I bring greetings from the West Coast where it's nine o'clock. Um, so I'm starting to wake up and that's a good thing as well. Um, as introduced, the topic we're going to be dealing with is the place of the name in Deuteronomy and integrating linguistics, archaeology, putting you through your paces as PhD students and who knows, maybe even capturing a future dissertation out of the thrilling information you're about to be exposed to. So it was a cool spring afternoon in April of 1980 while Israeli archaeologist Adam Zertal was conducting a routine archaeological survey of the territory of Manasseh when his team uncovered what would become the most controversial find of his career. It was an Iron One cult site. And for those of you who are not into archaeology, Iron One is Israel's settlement period on the shoulder of Mount Ebal. He began excavations in September of 1982, completed four seasons, and published his finds in January of 1985. More than 10 years later, I began my dissertation work. And in my dissertation work, I uh, focused in on the linguistic study of the long-debated Hebrew idiom found repeatedly in Deuteronomy's centralizing formula, the place that Yahweh would choose to cause his name to dwell is how your Bibles typically translate it. And focusing in on this place to which Israel was to come and worship, I was intrigued by all of the various evolutionary theories that had been applied to Deuteronomy based on the idiom. After the dissertation became a monograph during my first earned sabbatical, my linguistic and sociological study led me smack dab into Ebal and Adam Zertal's controversial finds. My lecture with you folks this afternoon will tell the story of how these two streams of information met and will hopefully have some pretty serious impact on your understanding of Deuteronomy's place in the name. So to start at the beginning, I am sure you are all aware that a major theme in the book of Deuteronomy is the place, the central cult site to which Israel is repeatedly commanded to come after they successfully enter the promised land. To this special place, Israel is instructed to bring their burnt offerings, their sacrifices, tithes, contributions, votive free will offerings, in other words, all of the tribute they, they are to bring to the great king Yahweh. They are to eat before Yahweh with their households, rejoice in all their undertakings. Throughout the book of Deuteronomy, the correct worship at this central site is presented as the defining criterion of community faithfulness. The problem is that the book of Deuteronomy never actually names the place. As a result, over the generations, scholarship has directed their attention to a variety of sacred sites identified in the settlement traditions. Folks have looked at Shechem, Shiloh, Bethel, Gilgal, Gerizim, and briefly, Ebal. But since the days of WML DeVette, pull up your history of scholarship, and Julius Wellhausen, the place has been identified as Jerusalem, and that option has eclipsed all other options. As a result, the idea is that the book of Deuteronomy is actually speaking in a sort of foreshadowing code about Jerusalem's central sanctuary. 
Now, Jerusalem surely is not named in the book, and we know the city did not house Israel's central cult site until the days of David. So if Devet and Velhausen are correct, and the central cult site in Deuteronomy is indeed Jerusalem, well, then we're looking at an 8th or 7th century book of Deuteronomy, which is a bit of a problem as regards Israel's idea of its own covenant and identity as Yahweh's people. And it leaves us with either an unknown or a non-existent central sanctuary during Israel's settlement period. So the question my research forced me to ask was this, what if the book of Deuteronomy actually does name its place? What if it actually does answer the question that it poses? What if? And if then, where is the place? So in the words of old game shows, this is the $64,000 question. And if you're ready for some hard linguistic data, we are ready to rock and roll. Okay, so the place the Lord your God will choose. Uh, let's start with some basics. The central cult site in Deuteronomy is identified 21 times in the book as the place that Yahweh your God will choose. This sentence title is known as the centralizing formula, and in 10 of those 21 occurrences, the sentence is augmented, as you see on the screen, with an additional phrase. The place that Yahweh your God will choose, Lashikain Shemosham, if you're looking at the Hebrew or the transliteration, or perhaps Lasum Shemosham. And if you have those figures on your table, you can glance at figures one and two and get an exhaustive list of those references. Now, we have known forever that the place in which the Lord your God shall choose, the two phrases, Lashikain Shemosham and Lasum Shemosham, share the exact same literary and syntactical context that the biblical writers obviously considered these phrases synonymous, but we couldn't demonstrate how this could be true, because Lasum Shemosham and Lashikain Shemosham are obviously different phrases. That is until my dissertation. Here we go. All right. So. Um, that's a fun thing to be able to say. So the Hebrew phrase, Lashikain Shemo Sham, I demonstrated in my BZW monograph, which I actually brought for you to see, because if you try to buy it from Amazon, it's a mere $112. It used to be $160. It's coming down. All right. Um, I demonstrated that Lashikain Shemo Sham traditionally translated the place that Yahweh will choose to cause his name to dwell, and then the name somehow becomes a hypostasis. That means a semi-permanent, somewhat physical aspect of the uh, deity is actually a loan adaptation from Akkadian. And if you haven't taken Akkadian yet, I know someone who can teach you, and it's time. All right, um, the loan adaptation of the Akkadian phrase Shemeshikanu to place the name. So our biblical writers have taken this ancient Akkadian idiom and have borrowed it into the text. Now, even a first-year student of comparative linguistics can see the relationship, right? Hebrew Lashikain is Akkadian Shekanu. Shemo for name is Shuma in Akkadian. So this is the first thing I demonstrated. The second thing I demonstrated is that the alternate Hebrew phrase, Lasum Shemosham, uh, was actually recognized throughout the first millennia BC as a Northwest Semitic calc 
of the same Akkadian phrase. And I demonstrated that via some bilingual uh, inscriptions, which we can talk about during Q&A if you'd like. In other words, if you wanted to translate the Akkadian Shemeshikanu into Northwest Semitic, that would be Canaanite, Aramaic, or Hebrew, you would do so by using some form of Lassum Shemosham. With this data, I demonstrated that the writers of Deuteronomy recognized their descriptor of the chosen place in Deuteronomy. They knew what this phrase meant, be it described with La Shikane Shemosham or La Sum Shemosham, and that they recognized it as a derivative of the Akkadian idiom, Shema Shikanu, which is best translated the place in which Yahweh your God will choose to place his name. So this idea of the name inhabiting is ousted, and now we have this idiom we need to investigate. So as good linguists and exegetes, with this not-so-new-now evidence, we should now be asking the question, what did Akkadian Shemeshikanu mean in its native semantic field? What meaning did the biblical authors intend to incorporate into our book of Deuteronomy by borrowing this phrase? So that means we have to take a look at the Akkadian, Shemeshikanu to place the name. A survey of the distribution of Akkadian Shemeshikanu shows that this phrase is extremely common and actually formulaic within the typology of the Mesopotamian royal monumental tradition. It first appears in these inscriptions in the late third millennium. That's almost as early as writing appears, and we can actually track it back into Sumerian as well. And it regularly reappears well into the Neo-Assyrian and Neo-Babylonian periods. In other words, Everyone knew what this phrase meant. Of great interest to us is this phrase is consistently associated with the royal act of making inscriptions, the installation of inscribed monuments, and in non-monumental contexts, the fame that results from such monuments. Also of interest is the fact that the phrase is typically embedded in the curse sections at the end of the inscriptions where the royal inscription is concluded and the king has reason to speak of his inscription and wish all of the curses of the gods to fall on anyone who would somehow damage or uh, replace his inscription with somebody else's name. So the king would speak of his shuma, his name, as an idiomatic way to refer to his inscription. He would utilize Akkadian shikanu to speak of placing or chiseling his name as an idiom to refer to either creating his inscription or installing his inscribed monument. And very interesting to me, this idiom is most often associated with votive and victory, and I'm very interested in victory monuments. Now, I can only show you a sampling of the texts that come out of the Mesopotamian world, but let me at least do that. So you're looking at a map of the Fertile Crescent. Our first corpus is the old Akkadian triumphal text installed at the city of Nippur. I love it when I get to do that, so I'm doing it again. Okay. There you go. All right, so the city of Nippur um, is central to the Mesopotamian Valley. The old Akkadian Empire first emerged in the late third millennia. So we are way back before the days of Abraham. This is in northern Mesopotamia. Their primary opposition in the region was the ancient coalition of Sumerian city-states in the south. 
So the monuments we're interested in were all victory monuments announcing various uh, triumphs of the Akkadian Empire in the north against the Sumerians in the south. It's important to us that the city-state of Nippur was repeatedly chosen as the place of installation. Why? Nippur was not a military capital, nor was it the most powerful of the city-states, but it was considered the religious capital of Sumer. It's a regal ritual city in Larry Steger's speak, so significant was Nippur to the cognitive map of the ancient Sumerians that control of Nippur was thought to confer the right to rule the region. If you controlled uh, Nippur, you controlled Sumer. And so the Akkadians adapted that perception and they put up their victory monuments in Nippur. So installing a victory monument there was significant because it had a psychological impact on the nation of Sumer as a whole. So let's take a look at some of those triumphal texts installed at Nippur. The first is from Remush. You can see his dates on the screen. Um, and it reads, uh, whoever let's get the English down there, whoever should remove the name highlighted as Mu of Remush, king of the world, and on the statue of Remush put his name and say my statue, and then Remush will go on to list all the curses that he wants to fall on the head of that usurper. Now I've highlighted the significant vocabulary. Mu is the Akkadian logogram meaning name. Ishkanuma, whoops, Ishkanuma is an inflected form of Akkadian shikanu to put to place in this context, name speaks both of Remish's literal name and metonymically it speaks of entire, his entire inscription. And to place it is to inscribe that name on a monument. What is the significance of placing one's name here and why is Remush concerned that somebody might chisel his name out and put theirs in? Well, anyone who puts his name on Remush's statue is stating, A, this statue is mine, and B, whatever heroic deeds are recorded on this statue are mine as well. Let's look at a reconstruction by Giorgio Bucciolati um, of the actual statue that Remush is understood to have raised in the courtyard of Nippur. Uh, this image of himself that Remush claims to have installed is again in the temple courtyard. Who is its intended audience? the newly subdued southern rival of Sumer. And here is Remush's inscription regarding the statue itself. Remush, king of the world, fashioned a statue of himself of meteoric iron for Enlil, that is, lord of air, and it stands before the god Enlil. He set up his name at the side of the gods, as for the one who removes this inscription, may the gods Enlil and Shamash tear out his foundations and destroy his progeny. So here the king states that he set up his name at the side of the gods, and apparently in this context, Remush's name actually means not just his inscription, but the monument itself. Uh, in addition to Remush, we have inscriptions uh, at Nippur from Naram Sim, at least three of those, and one from Shal Kalashari. All of them make use of the Shemeshikanu idiom as well. The one who removes the name of Naram Sin and puts his own name there or shows it to an outsider or stranger and says, hey, erase his name and put my name instead. May the great gods in their totality curse him with a terrible curse. And the curses go on um, and on. 
and on. So um, this example of this votive piece in which this concluding prohibition uh, might be read shows us what the name is understood to be and what placing the name is supposed to be. So our idiom in Deuteronomy referring, is referring to inscriptions and inscribed monuments. And this idiom goes all the way back to Nippur in the third millennia. Let's look at another corpus. This I like to call Journey to the Cedar Forest. And if you've read the Gilgamesh epic recently, you know that one of his great accomplishments is to go battle the great monster Huwawa who lives in the cedar forest, yes? Well, that cedar forest is actually in the Amanus mountain range. And this assemblage also makes use of the Shimushikanu idiom as military narratives of the northern kings, those are the old Akkadians, the Assyrians, uh, folks from Mari, who are busy plundering the renowned Cedar Mountain and bringing home cedar trees and junipers for building projects. From Sargon I to Shalmaneser III, these northern kings repeatedly campaigned to the west to plunder the Cedar Mountains, and they memorialized their campaigns with inscribed monuments. Sargon I, Yachtulim, Shamshiadad, Ashurnatsar Paul II, possibly Tiglath-Pileser I, Shalmaneser III, they all repeat this honored tradition, and here our idiom Shemeshikano is also repeated, and also repeated to speak of the kingly act of setting up an inscribed victory monument. Let's take a look at Yakdulim of Mari. But Yakdulim, the son of Yagadlim, the mighty king, a wild ox among kings, marched to the shore of the sea in irresistible strength. And besides that, he was really good looking and had great hair. <laughs> to the cedar and boxwood mountain, the great mountains he penetrated, he set up a monument, placed his name and made known his might. Or perhaps Shamshiadad, at that time I received the tribute of the kings of Turkish and of the king of the upper land within my city Asher, I placed my great name and my stela in the land of Lebanon on the shore of the great sea. Of interest to us is the fact that not only do we have this corpus uh, in the Amanus uh, mountain range, a journey to the cedar forest, but there were apparently a number of places that were popular with the Mesopotamian kings as locales where you would go to place your name. Places that were marked by unique significance, either beauty or danger or a great military victory. In fact, there were several triumphant texts which report that a certain ruler set up his monument next to the monument of his predecessor, or that he used the same outcropping of rock for his relief. The remains of such repeat stone engravings may be found at the Tigris Tunnel, Tushan along the Upper Tigris, Nineveh, Kalhu, um, and interesting at the mouth of Naher el Kalb, uh, which is the river of the dog. Um, this one I find super interesting and kind of entertaining as well, because this uh, location, six miles north of uh, Beirut, uh, is apparently a very dangerous but necessary passage for anyone campaigning from Mesopotamia down into the southern Levant. So ancient armies would celebrate their safe passage through this uh, wadi. I now know in California they call them barrancas, um, so I have a new name to add. Um, on the right, the south 
face, there are 17 rock carvings and stela from every imaginable era of history. The first inscription is that of Ramses II, there on your right. Uh, on the left is thought to be Shalmaneser's, the third's inscription. Here is an unidentified Assyrian king, but we all know it's an Assyrian king because the iconography doesn't change much. Um, most interesting to me is the more recent inscriptions that also place the name of the Nair el-Kab. You're looking at Napoleon's victory monument, and to the right, you are looking at an inscription from 1946 celebrating the evacuation of the French troops from now independent Lebanon. These archaeological and epigraphic remains demonstrate that from the earliest written records through our biblical text to place the name throughout the Fertile Crescent meant to make an inscription and or to install that inscribed monument. But of course, 100 years ago in biblical studies, we didn't realize that. So we came up with all sorts of other translations of Deuteronomy's centralizing uh, formula. Um, Obviously, Israel has been exposed to this tradition, uh, both in practice, written, oral, and visual form. Let me throw one other set of epigraphic material at you, and that's coming from the Amarna letters. You know them to be dated in the 14th century. Um, here you are reading a letter being exchanged between Abdi Hepa, the vassal king of Jerusalem, and his Egyptian overlord. And he is making use of... Um, the Akkadian phrase Shema Shekanu, but of course making use of it in Amarna Akkadian. As the king has placed his name in the region of Jerusalem forever, he cannot abandon the lands of the city of Jerusalem. In other words, you own my territory, dude. Step up and defend me. The next one from the same king, behold, the king my lord has placed his name at the rising and the setting of the sun. Now, in these letters, our idiom once again has to do with conquered territory and hegemoning. Not only are the morphological parallels between Akkadian Shemeshikanu and Biblical Hebrew, Lashikain Shemosham, more obvious in the Samarta Akkadian, but with these letters, we realize the international currency of this Akkadian idiom. The lords of Canaan are using this Mesopotamian language to talk to the pharaoh of Egypt. In some, we see that the ritual complex associated with placing the name was deeply embedded in the psyche of the Mesopotamian culture. And we see that the idiom Shema Shekano was so well known that it had migrated into various genres all over the Fertile Crescent. So what does that mean for the book of Deuteronomy and its central cult site? Well, first, the evidence indicates that the biblical writers had every reason to fully understand the semantic cargo of the idiom that they're borrowing, right? They knew what it meant, even if we didn't. Therefore, this choice of language on the part of the biblical writers lets us know that the place Yahweh will choose is probably associated in some manner with an inscribed monument, newly claimed territory, or both. So this not so new now, evidence, offers us a fresh entry into the old question. Where did Yahweh place his name? As this borrowed idiom has to do with the installation of inscribed monuments, could it be that the book of Deuteronomy is identifying the place for its audience by identifying an Israelite cult site 
at which Yahweh's monument was to be installed. So uh, let's review a little bit here. The place in which the Lord your God shall choose to place his name, according to the larger cultural context, should be associated with a monument. Yes? We know that 10 times Deuteronomy borrows this idiom. And we know that all of these borrowings fall within the oldest recognizable portion of the book, the old legal core between chapters 12 and 26. But do we really have a narrative or theological theme in Deuteronomy that supports this idea or speaks of monuments? And I am going to argue, yes, Yes, we do. I knew you saw that coming. All right, so the first place we want to look is Deuteronomy 12, the opening of the old legal core, and this is what it says. These are the statutes and judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which Yahweh the God of your fathers has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars. You shall smash their matzevot. You shall burn their asherim with fire and you shall cut down the images of their gods, and you shall efface their name from that place, also mistranslated in your Bible. You shall not act like this toward Yahweh your God, but to the place in which Yahweh your God will choose from all your tribes, to the place of his name, there you shall come. All right, this first passage uh, should sound pretty familiar at this point. Uh, as we've seen, the idea of effacing someone's name, i.e. their inscription, in order to claim their monument or the heroic act, structure, or territory marked by that monument as one's own is as old as the proverbial hills. The closing curses in the Mesopotamian monumental inscriptions are replete with the envisaged disasters that the gods would bring upon any future usurper who would violate a monument by somehow desecrating the inscription on it. In this passage, Israel is commanded to do just that, to efface the names of the deities of Canaan from their monuments at their sacred sites. The chapter then continues to tell us that Yahweh will be placing his name. Where? At a new sacred site. In the human political arena, such actions would clearly communicate that a new king has claimed the territory and or accomplishments of his predecessors. In Deuteronomy, I believe the message is the same. The divine overlords of Canaan are being about to be evicted from their domain, and a new king is moving in. All right, um, the second passage. Well, as the old legal core closes, we move to Deuteronomy 27, which opens with the following. Then Moses and the elders of Israel charged the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I am commanding you today, so that in the day you cross the Jordan to the land that Yahweh your God is giving you, you will erect for yourselves large stones. This should say matzevot. It doesn't because your author doesn't want to come anywhere near uh, pagan practices. You will erect for yourselves really big rocks, and you will plaster them with lime. And you will write upon them all the words of this Torah when you cross over, in order that you might enter into the land that Yahweh your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as Yahweh the God of your fathers promised you. And when you cross the Jordan, you'll erect these stones that I'm commanding you today on Mount Ebal. The Samaritan Pentateuch reads Gerizim. We can talk more about this. And you will plaster them with lime. 
What's happening here is Israel is being commanded to inscribe and display the words and heroic acts of Yahweh on large plastered stela. This command to set up inscribed monuments is followed by the command to erect an altar of the sort described in Exodus 20, built of earth and uncut stone. So now for the $64,000 question, where might this place be? Does the book of Deuteronomy actually tell us of a cult site in which a monument bearing Yahweh's inscription might be found? Well, I think it does. And it seems to me, according to this passage, it is one of the mountains surrounding ancient Shechem. And there you will build an altar for Yahweh your God, an altar of stones upon which you shall not wield an iron tool. This is Exodus 20. Of uncut stones you will build the altar of Yahweh your God, and you shall offer on it burnt offerings to Yahweh. You shall sacrifice peace offerings and eat there and rejoice before Yahweh your God. Does that sound familiar? That's Deuteronomy 12. You shall write on the stones all the words of this law very distinctly. So Israel is commanded to offer their burnt offerings, eat, rejoice before Yahweh on Mount Ebal, just as they were commanded to do at the place in Deuteronomy 12. Moreover, whereas according to Deuteronomy 12, the place is a locale across the Jordan in which Yahweh's inscribed monument and altar may be found, well, just such a place is identified right here in Deuteronomy 27. So in sum, what we are looking at with the linguistic part of this argument is that Deuteronomy 12 introduces the law code with a command to efface the inscriptions of the Canaanite deities from their cult sites. That's nothing new in this cognitive world. Deuteronomy 12, 5, 11, 21, they're listed on your figures, identifies the place as that special locale where Yahweh's inscription will be found. And Deuteronomy 11 and 27, well, don't have time to look at 11 right now, informs us how, when, and where Yahweh's inscribed monuments are to be installed. So we see that the theme of Yahweh's inscribed monument is broadly distributed within the book of Deuteronomy, and the texts evincing this theme, Deuteronomy 11, 12, and 27, are critical to the larger narrative structure of the book. So from a narrative perspective, a literary perspective, a linguistic perspective, Deuteronomy 11 and through 27 form a very neat package and appear to be the Deuteronomist's answer to where the place might be. And the place of the name in Deuteronomy is apparently Mount Ebal. How odd this must be. All right. Um, the deal is, however, and I am running out of time, that this is not a welcome interpretation by most of the higher critical world committed to Wellhausen's uh, paradigm. Because Deuteronomy has to be 7th century, and what in the world would anyone be doing worshipping at Mount Ebal during the 7th century? The northern kingdom is busy worshipping at Dan and Bethel. The southern kingdom is busy worshipping at Jerusalem. Having a central cult site in Ebal is like having the Washington Monument in Bismarck, North Dakota. There is no reason to do this. So, um, there have been many solutions to this problem and solutions, uh, solutions that make Ebal an unacceptable response. And one of them is the response that there is no such thing as a plastered stela in the ancient world. Um, 
There are such things as plastered sila. Uh, you will recall that the Israelites were commanded to plaster their standing stones with lime. It's very interesting to me that as I plowed through dozens of commentaries on Deuteronomy, that most commentators seem to think that plastering a prepared stila for an ink inscription is somehow an anomaly. Most will say that it's possibly trackable to Egypt, but unusual at best. Whereas in reality, coating stila with lime-based plaster in order to inscribe with ink was a common practice in Iron Age Canaan. So much so that Frank Moorcross, bow your head, um, the master of all things epigraphic, has stated that the dearth of inscriptions recovered from Iron Age Israel is probably the result of the widespread practice of this historically unfortunate epigraphic convention. Because obviously when rain falls on plastered stela, the ink washes away. Hence, um, Mount Ebal, oh, well, let's take a look. Again, I'm just going to start plowing through here. Where do we have plastered stela? Well, the most famous is probably the Der Allah ink on plaster inscriptions. Dating to the end of the 8th, perhaps the early 7th century BCE, this important site is located halfway between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea and the Transjordan. Here, plaster fragments written upon in ink in a cursive Aramaic script form part of a large inscription painted upon a wall or perhaps a mud brick stela in red and black ink. The important stuff's in red. Isn't that interesting? Um, the subject matter of this large inscription can be heard in the title of the text. The book of Balaam, son of Beor, the man who was a seer of the gods. Here are some close-ups of those plaster chunks excavated, uh, combinations one and two. And here we see ink on plaster inscriptions were indeed well known in Iron Age Canaan. We'll move on to Kuntilat Ajrud, also the focus of a great deal of scholarly interest, uh, also from the 8th, 8th century. This caravansary, that means a truck stop with a chapel, had a bench room where passersby could leave their offerings and receive a blessing in return. Here, several Hebrew inscriptions using ink on plaster have been recovered. Here is a close-up of probably the most famous. May your days be prolonged and may you be satisfied. Give Yahweh of Taman and his Asherah favor. I'll let you talk about that in your PhD seminars. But the point being, I've got ink on plaster being displayed as I don't know what I touched or how to get back and I might need help. Um, those are Westies. I don't know what happened. Because um, my screen is still doing what it's supposed to be doing. Is that going to work? Okay, I can do that one. Thank you so much. All right, that means I get two extra minutes. Okay, where is... All right, Yahweh and his Asherah. There we go. All right, uh, last example comes from Carthage, actually. And you're thinking, what in the world does Carthage have to do with the southern Levant? And the answer is that Carthage was a major Phoenician colony. And in this Phoenician colony, which has been made famous by its gruesome child cemeteries, we find another echo of this epigraphic convention. 
what am I, I'm, I am not doing much here. Uh, I will put down the little direction thing and see. Uh, so do you want to come to Westmont? Look how happy you'll be. Okay, we'll just do it this way. All right, so um, Phoenicia uh, settled this area, and here is where the child sacrifice to Molech has been researched. And here we find that the graves, there are, by the way, as many as 20,000 urns recovered from this multi-layer tophet um, with multiple um, child sacrifices in those urns. But each one of the graves are marked by these little uh, limestone burial markers. And they uh, date from the 8th through the 3rd centuries BC. They are plastered and written upon in ink. And so although the site itself is actually much later than our period, the Phoenician origins indicate the cultural continuum. OK, another supposed problem with Deuteronomy 27, OK, this ain't me, um, <laughs> is uh, altars and stela. And the idea, supposedly, that an altar and a stela doesn't belong in the same site. And uh, as any of your Old Testament profs will tell you, altars and stela do indeed belong in the same site. But when folks like Von Rath and our great fathers in the faith were trying to deal with Deuteronomy 27, they hadn't necessarily excavated any Canaanite sites. And they thought it was odd that there would be an altar and a stela in the same site. And so they came up with two supposed traditions, one commemorating Sinai and one commemorating Gilgal, and named Deuteronomy 27 stela some sort of late odd addition to the text. Well, we don't have time to go through all of the altars in Stila, but do in, take a look at the city of Shechem. Incredibly famous. The temple is significantly important to us because it operated during the Iron One period, which is the settlement period. And it's located right in the midst of the territory of Manasseh, which is where our people settle in uh, the Promised Land. The region of most concentrated early Israelite settlement therefore encircles the ancient city of Shechem. And as you probably know, the city and the territory of Shechem, uh, they were, Shechem was the political, geographic, sociological center of the northern part of the central hill country from the Middle Bronze all the way through the Iron One period. Period. Steger describes Shechem and its temple as the premier religious center of the highlands. Israel Finkelstein speaks of it as the most important urban center. And uh, we will read later that McGain speaks of it, uh, G. G. Wright speaks of it as the uncrowned queen of Palestine. So if Steger's reconstruction is correct. This temple that we're about to look at functioned throughout the early settlement period until its demise in 1100 BC by Bolimelech, who is recorded in Judges uh, chapter 9. And as we look at Shechem and at the critically important fortress temple that is located there, we find that right there in the courtyard are two enormous stela. Um, I can't stress to you enough how important this cultic center was. It was multi-storied, 70 feet wide, 86 feet long, 
and six and a half meters in front of the entrance in this open air region was an altar as well as uh, two major and one lesser stela. You're looking at Matseba one or stela one. Um, it actually was destroyed by its second excavator because he didn't want Judges 9 to actually be historical, so he threw it into the dig dump and uh, destroyed it. But even with its uh, destruction, as you look at the lower picture, you can see how massive it was. G.E. Wright speaks of it as so huge that could not have been moved very far by anyone without major preparation and special equipment. It was a specially fine piece of hard white limestone. Unlike the other stone used in the great building, great care had been used to cut it, smooth it by polishing, and do away with the chisel marks. Larry Steger adds to that, the quality of the size, shape, and preparation of the stela suggests that it once bore an elaborate inscription. The two stela, Flanking, the inscriptions were not engraved. Otherwise, some traces of the inscription would remain. But instead, Steger goes on to say that it was covered with plaster and inscribed with a painted inscription. Um, here are more contemporary pictures of Shechem and the Stila and my big day when I got to lecture on the Stila right there in the midst. Okay, so all this to say, Deuteronomy 27 doesn't need to be fixed. The idea that there's an altar and a stela at Israel's cult site doesn't need to be fixed. The idea that there's an altar and stela is exactly what should be at an Iron One cult site. So let's see what I can do with three minutes here about Mount Ebal. Now Mount Ebal, as you've seen, um, stands on the shoulders of Shechem. Uh, Ebal and Gerizim flank the city. We saw in Mesopotamian practice that Akkadian Shemeshikanu was commonly associated with the installation of a votive or victory display monument and that these monuments were installed in politically or geographically significant locations. We looked at this image of Rimush's stela and saw that Akkad was speaking to Sumer by installing the victory monument in the midst of Nippur. We saw that there were repeat uh, installations to again declare hegemony over the western coast. Well, what about the archaeology of Mount Ebal? Well, as I said, Ebal is not the place you would anticipate anything significant happening at any point during the monarchy. It is an odd choice for the central sanctuary any time during the united or the divided monarchy. But there was one stage in Israelite history during which Ebal was anything but obscure. You see, Ebal is located in the hill country of Manasseh, the region identified by Zirkal and Finkelstein as the densest area of early Israelite settlement. Two-thirds of the Iron One Israelite population in Canaan in the 11th century BCE may be found right here, as well as one-third of the identified sites. If we are to assume, based on what we know about Shiloh, that an early Israelite cult center would be situated in a place accessible to the largest possible portion of our newly settled tribal population, 
the territory of Manessa would have been absolutely the best choice in Iron One Canaan. Moreover, in what will come to be known as the region of Manessa, the city and territory of Canaanite Shechem was indeed the established political, geographic, and religious center of the indigenous population. Sounds a lot like Nippur, doesn't it? Except for now, we're looking at Canaan. Um, let's take a quick look at some of its conspicuousy. Um, one thing you need to know is that Ebal is geographically quite conspicuous. It is the highest mountain in northern Samaria. It rises over 3,000 feet above sea level. It claims a view from Mount Hermon to the hills of Jerusalem. George Adam Smith, the first historical geographer of ancient Canaan, made this comment. The view from Ebal virtually covers the entire land. No geography of Palestine can afford to dispense with a view from the top of Mount Ebal. And having seen Ebal, I would also argue that any stela placed on top of Ebal would be visible for miles and miles around. If the intent of placing the name in the book of Deuteronomy, like the triumphal monuments of Mesopotamia, is related to a visible declaration of hegemony in a politically and religiously significant site, guys, there's no better place than Mount Ebal in early Canaan. Um, I would love to detail with you um, the archaeology of Mount Ebal. Um, let me say a few things. It indeed was excavated by Adam Zertal in 1982 to 1989. Um, he published his findings. He was talked into publishing a popular article with Barr before he got the site report out. And he sabotaged his professional career by doing so because he made the argument that what he had found in the first, uh, the second stratum of the site was Joshua's altar. And so we have area A, we have area B. Look at the lifespan of this site, 1240 to 1140, that's it. And 1140, the place is shut down, it's retired. And guess when Shiloh comes up on the map? That would be about 1150 BC by Israel Finkelstein, and you don't argue with Israel. All right, so from the air, this is what Finkelstein excavated. Sorry, this is what Zertal excavated. His argument here is that he's got an altar. Um, he's gotten almost no support for that conclusion, but what no one can turn a blind eye to is what he has named Installation 94 in the midst of this excavated site. What do we find in installation 94? Enough burnt bones to start our own business. 3,000 burnt bones have been excavated from this site. There is very little residential housing. There's not a village for miles. In other words, this is not regular life. This is an offering place. And of those 3,000 burnt bones, 96% would pass the Levitical standard for clean. Only edible animals are present at Ebal, while at other sites, animals possibly used for various purposes, such as equids, that's horses and donkeys, are present. The specific absence of gazelle and pig remains is of interest, considering their presence in the immediate vicinity of the site, both in antiquity and today. 
It is suggested that the eball faunal assemblage represents a narrow range of activities, either in function or in time. The absence of animals prohibited for consumption but frequent at other Iron Age sites suggests conformity with biblical tenants. Now, I'm not even going to touch what Zertal has done with his buildings um, because it is so controversial at this point in time. But what we clearly see, and everyone must affirm, is that Ebal boasts an Iron One cult site. An Iron One cult site. We've got like three. With a uniquely Israelite bone assemblage utilized only in the earliest stages of Israelite settlement prior to the settlement of Shiloh. So, yes, something akin to Deuteronomy 27 could have happened here. So to close all of that down, summary and conclusions. Our linguistic study shows that the place of the name means we should be looking for an inscribed stela. That's what it teaches us. We see that Deuteronomy chapters 11, 12, 27, and a little mention in 7, 5, stela, inscribed stela, make a repeated appearance in the book of Deuteronomy and culminate with the um, traditionally illegitimate child of Ur Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 27. Not in my world, it belongs in there. Um, the book of Deuteronomy does identify its special place as Mount Ebal or perhaps Mount Gerizim. But Ebal is the one that has the Iron One cult site. So the implications regarding the provenance of the book is that we are indeed looking at a book that has real historical memory of the Iron One period, and we're looking at a book that is declaring the sovereignty and hegemony of a newly conquering suzerain of the region, and his name is Yahweh. <laughs>